Hi, welcome to Diving Into Deep Waters. I am your host, Erin Rowling, and we have just a few days until Christmas. <laughs> I have been thinking of all the things that I need to do, and Christmas is involved, especially if you're a mom. You, it's just a lot. It's so involved. Someone was telling me that the other day they were talking to their kids and they said, being a kid and Christmas is the best thing in the world, but being a mom, it's another story. It's just a lot that you have to think about. I finally this week was able to go through things and kind of figure out what I've got going on, what I still need. And I thought I was in really good shape. And then I realized, whoops, I let some things fall through the cracks you know, it is what it is. But as I was preparing for this podcast and thinking about what am I going to start off with? And I thought I had read a twas a night before Christmas kind of thing for moms. And so I looked it up and I thought, I'm going to read this. For all the moms out there who are stressed and we, we want to make it so special, right? We it's not stressed in maybe a bad way per se. It's that we want the day to be magical and exciting and wonderful and that our kids think it's the best Christmas that they've ever had in their life. And that's that's our goal. But in the midst of that, it can be stressful in a bad way. <laughs> so I'm going to read this, Twas the Night Before Christmas, to start off this podcast. And this is for all you moms out there. I'm going to try to not cry because I actually cried when I was reading it, but I can do it. Here we go. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, mom was still stirring and she snuck like a mouse. Sound familiar, moms? (laughs) The stockings were hung by the chimney with care. Then again, how else does mom do these things every day of the year? The children were nestled, all snug in their beds, never really knowing how much they fill mom's head. True fact. While mom sets out all the gifts, she still has many doubts. Has she done enough? Or would her kids be without? Gifts were brought, bought, some more thoughtfully than others. But mom who buy more if she had her druthers, which I actually had to look up the word druthers because I didn't know what it meant. It basically meant like mom would buy more if she had her way. And mom would do more if only she could. She'd buy more and give more and love more. Of course mom would. Feeling tired, inadequate, and oh so worn, mom became the object of her own newfound scorn. Not even St. Nick, with all his toys and cheer, could rescue dearest mom from all this Christmas drear. But then suddenly the strangest thing occurred. Mom found near the glowing tree a paper filled with words. It was sloppily written, rushed, and without pause. This letter from Mom's youngest to Mr. Santa Claus. Dear Santa, it went as Mom began to read. Here are a list of the things I could ever want or need. The list is short, though, so I hope it's worth your time. But the gift I'm asking for is always on my mind. So Santa, give it to me each and every year. And wherever I go, please keep this gift so near. By now, Mom was curious, filled with much intrigue. What is this gift of a lifetime? What could it ever be? She continued reading, hoping to learn more, which soon she did, and left her fully floored. Floored by the words that somehow made her whole. 
this symphony of sweetness, this music to her soul. The only gift I'll ever want is the only one I'd ever miss. So if I can have just one thing, Santa, mom alone is on my list. Moms, we can do this. And you are the most important part of Christmas, moms. (laughs) I don't know. I just thought that was sweet and maybe just bring a little joy to your heart that every ounce of your worrying, every ounce of your, the effort that you put into Christmas, it is worth it and your kids will appreciate it. So we can do this. All right, we're going to get back into our discussion from last week's podcast, The Christmas Story, because we didn't finish it. Of course not. How could we ever fit that all in one podcast? There's no way. But we basically left off with our gal pals, Mary and Elizabeth. They're hanging out. Elizabeth is speaking life into Mary. Mary's lifting up a song that magnifies the Lord, celebrates his goodness, his faithfulness, and his power. And now it is time for a baby to be born. I don't know about you, but I love when a baby is born. It is one of the most exciting things in life. If a friend is having their a grandchild, I want to know all the details. Like, they're in labor. Okay, how are they doing? Are they progressing? All of these things. Because and when it's born, you wait for that announcement. You wait for the pictures on your phone. It's just, I don't know. It's so, so special. And last week, we started off with John. And it it's about his birth first. He precedes the Savior. And in Luke 1, 57, we didn't even make it out of Luke 1, you guys. But it says, she brought forth a son. I love that. You know, in the first podcast, we talked about that there was proof that the story was true, which to me means a lot, especially where I am in my life right now and all that we've gone through. But I love that it's, it's saying that she brought forth a son and it's telling us that that promise was fulfilled. Because if you remember, Gabriel had told Zacharias, hey, you're going to have a son. And so when that baby was born, it's like, okay, what the angel said, that promise is fulfilled. And then it says, they rejoiced with her. Who's the they? Her neighbors and her relatives. And again, it fulfills Gabriel's promise because he says, many will rejoice at his birth. I mean, everything that was said is going to be a son. Well, you're going to get pregnant. That happened. You're going to have a son. That happened. Many are going to rejoice at his birth. It happened. So I'm sure at this point, they're pretty much thinking as parents, okay, I'm pretty sure everything Gabriel told us, it's going to be true. Now, here's a little side note. And I just, I don't know if there's like a significance to really say this, but I just think it's interesting because realizing the times and the difference between boy and girl babies was a major difference. To me, not, I mean... A baby boy, baby girl hold the same amount of significance to me, no matter what their gender is. It's exciting. It's a baby. It doesn't matter. But back then, a little bit different story. And I read this and I thought, oh, 
that's interesting. I'm glad I didn't have a baby back then. (laughs) But basically, what would happen is when a woman went into labor, the the friends of the town, you know, their friends in town, their local musicians would gather around the house and they would wait for the news that the baby was born for the announcement. So when the father or whoever it was would come out and announce, it's a boy, that means that all the musicians would rejoice and sing and dance and all of these great things. But when it was announced, it's a girl, it was, they were silent and they left. How terrible is that? I don't know. I had three girls and I'm like, I rejoice just as much for those three girls as I did my son. And I'm glad it's not like that anymore because shame on them for doing that. I know it was how things were, but thankfully we learned to celebrate all babies. Now to name this little guy. Now tradition said that it would be named after his father, which is Zacharias, right? But they were told to name him John. So Elizabeth, because remember, Zacharias can't speak. He, he's, his tongue is tied up. He's not allowed to speak. So Elizabeth says, nope, we're not calling him Zacharias. We're going to name him John. And they don't believe her. Again, don't take the mother's word. Um, I think she's a pretty important part. Excuse me, she just gave birth. You do what the woman says. And... They actually start to motion to Zacharias, and which is just kind of funny because if you think about it, Zacharias is not deaf. He's a, he's mute, but he's not deaf. So why are they motioning to him? He can hear what you're saying, people. But anyways, Zacharias asks for a writing tablet, tablet, and he writes, his name shall be John. Here's the little thing here. Zacharias failed to believe the first time when Gabriel told him, like, hey, you're going to have a son. He's like, I'm old and my wife's getting up there in age. But not this time. He, this is like his redemption moment for Zacharias where he's like, um, you know what? The first time I didn't believe, but this time I'm naming him John. This is his name. And it's just kind of a full circle moment for Zacharias here. And immediately his mouth opened and his tongue loosened, and he spoke, praising God. <sighs> Here's a little, there's a lot of side notes here, actually. I'll just say that. <laughs> Zachariah's disobedience and becoming mute, it doesn't make him bitter. Because if he had allowed that to make him bitter, that's not the first thing he would have said out of his mouth. And yet here we see him, as soon as his tongue is loosened, he is praising God. God. And not only is his tongue loosened and he's praising God, but it says that the Holy Spirit comes on him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, that does not happening yet. That doesn't happen until after Jesus ascends back into heaven, except we do know that John is going to carry the Holy Spirit. But in this, when other people would have a, a moment with the Holy Spirit, it was because the Holy Spirit came upon them which happens to Zacharias, and he prophesies. Now, here's something interesting. Up to this time, it had been 400 years since there had been prophecy. So, Gabriel, Elizabeth, Mary, and now Zacharias, these are the people God uses 
to rebirth prophecy. But it's been 400 years, and it shows in the first thing that Zechariah says, because he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's, he probably knew, like, it's been a long time, but all of a sudden, with the foretelling of John and Christ's birth and all the things that are about to happen, prophecy comes back into play. He goes on to say, And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is spirit-inspired prophecy because remember, okay, I think sometimes we look at people in the Bible and we're like, well, they're so spiritual. Well, they're human, okay? And Zacharias has just become a father and he just got his voice back. (laughs) So... Kind of a big moment to become a proud papa. And he's not talking about his son. His focus is on the unborn Jesus. And this is what his prophecy entails. So you know it wasn't Zacharias speaking. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Because he talks about Jesus as the horn of salvation for us. Jesus is the one who saves us from our enemies. Jesus is the one to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Jesus is the one to remember the covenant. Jesus makes us able to serve him without fear. Zacharias' prophecy is actually referred to as the song of salvation because that's what he prophesies. He prophesies about what Jesus is going to do, how he's going to redeem them, how he's going to make a way from them. That's what his prophecy entails. And you can read that in the book of uh, Luke 1. A writer wrote this, and I thought it was pretty cool. He said, Zacharias didn't even know Jesus, yet he praised him, he loved him, and he was passionate about him. So he definitely allowed the Holy Spirit to speak through him because his thought isn't to his newborn son first. But after he talks about Jesus, then he does say, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, speaking to God's plan for his son. Because John is a true prophet of the Lord. John has a calling to go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. John would teach about the knowledge of salvation. John is going to show the people the remission of their sins. John is going to be a light to the darkness. And John is going to guide God's people into a way of peace. So first Zacharias talks about Jesus and then he talks about his son. And the promise of God is fulfilled in John's life. He, he, it says the child grew and became strong in spirit. So that's John's birth. Now on to Jesus. But first, before we get into Jesus, we kind of need to take a look at the world that Jesus was born into. And starting in Luke 1, yes, we made it to Luke 2, actually. I said Luke 1. Luke 2. We're not in Luke 1, Aaron. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Now, again, Luke is making sure that we know that these events are true. So he's like, hey, if you want to check this out, you can see a decree that went out where a census was to be done. People are supposed to be registered. Again, I appreciate that, Luke. Now, there's a lot of history here 
but we would be here all day. <laughs> I did read through it. It was very interesting, but that would make for an extremely long podcast. So what we're going to kind of just take everything that I learned and put it in a shorter part is basically up to this point, there had been about 20 years of a civil war. And basically Jesus coming into the world, it wasn't at a time of just greatness. They, actually everything leading up to his birth had been horrible. It had been a time like the world was wrecked by war and destruction, brutality and immorality and all of those things. So it wasn't great. <laughs> things were not great. But along come, came a guy named Caesar Augustus and he does bring peace. Because basically what happened was there was three guys who were fighting, constantly fighting, and Caesar Augustus, he won out. So he's the, the top dog now. And he's defeated his rivals, so he brings peace finally to 20-year war. It's ended now. He brings political and administrative skills because he's like, hey, we've got to be able to kind of count these people. He had wisdom in that of knowing what he was dealing with. And he also brings vast amount of money, which we all know helped the economy when there's money. <laughs> they basically went from poor to wealthy with Caesar Augustus at the, the head of things. Now, here's something that I didn't know. I don't know a lot of things, actually. I'm learning right along with you. But Rome kind of prided itself on being a republic, which is basically a nation governed by laws, not by a man. But Octavius, that was actually his name, he changed that. And he basically gave himself his own name by making them give him the title of Augustus, which means exalted or sacred. So Octavius became Caesar Augustus. So now Rome became an empire governed by an emperor, and Caesar Augustus is their first emperor. So, why all these facts? <laughs> well, because I do think it helps us understand Jesus was born into a world looking for a savior. When you've been in 20 years of war, you want peace, you want rest. You're looking for someone to come save your nation to take care of things. And on the outward, it looks like Caesar Augustus is that savior. But it shows that at this time, people were hungry for a savior. Maybe they didn't know exactly that they needed what Jesus was, what kind of savior Jesus was, but they were hungry for someone to make things peaceful because it hadn't been at peace for a long time. But as we full know, Government is not the answer to actual peace. And I will say right here, because we are coming up on an election year in the new year, and it's going to get crazy, <laughs> as you know. And I'm not going to get political. But what I am going to say, what I found when we voted at the last election and the one before that, I often found people put their hope in our president the, in our government. And it was basically like when things didn't maybe go the way we wanted, it was like, just, 
it really unsettled me because it showed that our faith was in a man instead of a God. And I think that's exactly what's happening here is everyone's faith is in a man to bring peace when God's like, well, you don't have real peace without me. And as we come into a next election, I would really advise us to not look to a man for our peace, but that Jesus is our peace. All right, that's as political as I'm going to get. Now, there was a census. (laughs) I don't know why I've always thought of the census as a time for them to just count the people. (laughs) It was a little deeper than that. Remember, money is at the root of everything. And it was an effective and efficient way for them to tax everyone in the Roman Empire. So in verse 3, it says, so all went to be registered. It's basically like one man gives a command and the whole world responds. It's, and it's interesting because, again, I guess going back a little political, we'll go back just a little bit. You realize that when people are elected into office or you're looking at, we're looking at Caesar Augustus here, they're just people that God has put into place and they're just a part of the plan. I think people probably look to Caesar Augustus as their savior. I think we have looked to presidents as our savior when they're just a part of the plan. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that. It's just a person that God is using in the bigger picture because when we don't get our way, we start to freak out. Or people are like, well, actually, that was the president. It's like, I think those situations really show where we put our trust. And we need to remember, they're just a person. And God's like, I have this person at this time in this place. I'm in control, and I've got it all figured out about how I want to go. And here, Caesar Augustus thought he was all that in a bag of chips, and he's just a piece of the plan. That is all that he is, nothing more. And same with people in our government. They're just a piece of the plan. All right, now we're definitely going to move on from political. It says, everyone to his own city. They had to travel. And remember, this isn't like getting on a plane or, which traveling is a lot of work. I'm just going to be honest. I, I'm not, I like to travel, but I don't like to travel. Like I hate to pack. Packing is the worst. It's just, I don't mind unpacking, but packing, remembering everything, ugh, such a pain in the butt. But it's not like I could pack everything in a car or a suitcase for a plane. This is like, You just probably take the bare necessities, maybe some underwear and some deodorant. I don't know what they took, but probably not much because you got to carry what you have. It's kind of like when backpackers go backpacking in the mountains or whatever. They don't take a whole lot because you got to carry that stuff. Now, here's a positive thing of traveling, though. Back to where they were born. They're probably going to have family there, so I guess it's a great time for a family reunion. (laughs) Anyways, all right, so now that we have set the scene with facts, now we can get into the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to read basically the passages of scripture moving forward. 
And it says in verse 4 through 7, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. All right. So Joseph and Mary had to travel around 80 miles. Yeah, that's that's quite the trip, especially on foot or donkey or whatever you had. And I guess I've always, I don't know, we see it in every play or nativity scene or movie or whatever. We always see Mary on the donkey, heavily pregnant, right? And I kind of feel like we got to burst our bubble a little bit here <laughs> with that image because scripture, I don't know. I've, I've never paid attention to this. I've never seen this. Maybe I'm just blind. I don't know, but that's what we depict, right? But it says here that while they were there, the days completed for her to be delivered. It doesn't sound like she traveled there heavily pregnant. Obviously, she was pregnant. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I don't think she was like in labor traveling because it sounds like they got there. She completed her days of being pregnant, and then she had the baby. I'm just saying. I think it went down a little bit different than we thought. (laughs) Okay, some of you are like, you just burst every image I have of Mary. Well, maybe we need to pay a little closer attention to the scripture. I'm just saying that for myself. So... Mary technically didn't have to go with Joseph is what I read somewhere. Don't know if that's 100% true. But it is interesting to think that if she didn't have to go, then why did she go? Especially being pregnant. And I did think, well, possibly it could be because obviously Mary's pregnant and they're not married. You know, they're not fully married. And so um, that causes some gossip, that causes some prying eyes, that causes some judgment. And I wonder if Joseph was like, hey, let's get out of where we live, where everybody knows us. Everybody knows we're not married. Everybody's maybe questioning what's going on here, as people do. And let's just go and we'll finish out your pregnancy and then we'll have the baby there. I don't know, but there's a thought. All right, so food for thought. She brought forth her firstborn son. Luke says it so simply here. It's so understated. (laughs) And she brought forth her firstborn son. You can tell Luke is a guy because us women, we want details. We want all the details. It's kind of like when someone tells my husband, that a baby was born. And I'm like, so how big were they? How much did they weigh? How long are they? You know, like, are, is it, how did it go? Like, 
we don't just say, oh, she had a baby. We're like, oh, and so then her contractions were, uh, went from three minutes apart to two minutes apart. And then, you know, she pushed for about half an hour and then this happened and then that happened and then this happened and that happened and then this happened and then that happened. And then the baby was born. (laughs) There's so much detail we give. And Luke's here just saying, it's so simply, and she brought forth her firstborn son. <laughs> so different than how if a woman would have written this account, right? And also here, it says she, Mary, brought forth her son. I There's really no indication that she had help giving birth to this baby. I don't know. I guess I've thought, I don't know, Joseph, I mean, men weren't typically a part of giving birth back then, so I'd be surprised. I don't know if there was a maid servant nearby to help give birth or any of these things, but I will say this. My grandma gave birth in the woods by herself, so it is possible to do it by yourself. I wasn't there. I don't know what Mary did, but, you know, just questions that I've never really asked myself as I've read through the Christmas story. Also, a lot of people have a question about, was it on December 25th? Probably not, but they said it could have been. I don't know. But that's where, when we celebrate it, that's when we do it. Also, people kind of say, you know, the Virgin Mary. Here's the thing, you guys. It says her firstborn son, which means, and we do know from accounts in scripture, she had more sons. She had more children. She was a virgin no more. So I don't know why people keep saying, I mean, she was a virgin with Jesus, but after that, we are not a virgin. Anyways, just a side note. I don't know why I'm saying that, but it just intrigued me. (laughs) It says she wrapped him in swaddling cloth. Swaddling cloth actually comes from the ancient Greek word meaning to tear, which is basically torn strips of cloths. Uh, yeah, I've never packed a hospital bag with some strips of cloth that I was going to wrap my baby in, but that's what Mary had, and that's what Jesus was wrapped in. Nothing exciting. I don't know how that worked, but, and he was laid in a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. I mean, this is the most understated birth ever, and definitely the most understated birth of a king. It's crazy. It is funny. I was listening to a podcast and these people were talking about how they got asked to adopt a baby like out of nowhere and they just were not prepared. And so they, they said they had a laundry basket. (laughs) Baby slept in there until they could get an actual crib. And Mary, she didn't have a crib, but she had a feeding trough, and that's what she used, and some strips of cloth. She That girl made it work. She was resourceful. It says there was no room for them in the inn, which I find a little interesting because if we, we just talked about how basically you're going back to where your heritage is, so wouldn't you have some family there? Why did no one have room for them? Did they not have any family there? Or their family like, hey, listen, we're full up. We don't have room for you, which happens. Okay, I get it. I think you'd make room for a pregnant woman. That seems to 
you know, makes sense to me. But, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know. I do know at times when family comes, it's like, hey, we're full up here. You're going to have to find a place. But if someone's pregnant, I'd probably be a little bit more, make it work. I don't know. But, and you you think about it. I mean, they're giving, she's giving birth in a stable, which basically, if you go back, it was more of a cave kind of thing. And, you know, people are going about doing their stuff. It's a public place. It's it's not a hospital in a private room or in your home, in the privacy of your own home. You're like in a cave. There's people, I'm sure, about. And yet, they had no idea that the kingdom of, of heaven was among them. It's just crazy. It's just like the simplicity of his birth when it should have been the most majestic thing, and yet he chooses to come so, so incredibly lowly. Someone wrote... There was no room for him in the inn, but the only place there was room for him was on a cross. I liked that. I thought that was impactful. So verse 8, my favorite characters arrive into the story. I talk about this a lot because I love the shepherds. So it says in verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, I didn't know this, but Bethlehem shepherds were known for caring for the temple flocks. So basically, this people would go to the temple and sacrifice lambs. The shepherds were the ones taking care of those lambs that were sacrificed. So you also know that now too. Verse 9 through 14, this is the angelic announcement. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill towards men. It is a quiet, dark night. And all of a sudden, an angel appears. I think these angels kind of like to surprise people. Because if you think about Zacharias, he was startled by Gabriel. Then you think of Mary. She has fear when the angel appears to her. And here the shepherds are just watching their sheep, maybe snoozing, maybe snoring, whatever is going on. And all of a sudden, there's an angel (laughs) out of nowhere. And it's bringing glad tidings, which actually means that it's preaching the gospel. So guess who the first person to preach the gospel was? An angel. Yeah, kind of cool. What's interesting about the shepherds, because you have to have a little bit more understanding of them in order to appreciate them. Because basically they're the social outcasts. They have a very bad reputation of being unreliable. So much so that they weren't allowed to give testimony in the law of court because they were so unreliable. So they were never allowed to do that, which isn't a good rap. (laughs) But the angels announced the birth of the Savior, the Savior to these outcasts. 
the angels are like, no, these people, they're the ones we're going to tell. So there's one angel, but then all of a sudden, there's a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, and they are proclaiming peace. Remember, Augustus, Caesar Augustus had peace for more, but he cannot provide the peace of the heart. And people, whether they knew it or not, were yearning for peace of the heart. We are still in a world that is looking to people to bring peace when it's only Jesus who can bring peace. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. The shepherds did not waste a moment. I love that. They were so excited. They have like this genuine urgency, no hesitation. They're like, let us go now. And I cannot imagine, I talked about this in church last Sunday, the moment that they got to see the baby, like here they're told about it, but then their eyes lay lay on this babe that they're actually like seeing it. I, I don't know. I, I wish I could see their faces and see the expression on their face because it had to be the most joyous expression ever given to anybody <laughs> of just like, we're seeing what we were told about. And I'm sure it was not lost on them that they who were the lowest, they're the lowest of low, they get to see the king. I mean, what an honor. I, I'm sure they had to have thought of that. Like, what are, like pinch me, are, are we? Are, did, they, did, did the angels go to the wrong people? <laughs> they, maybe they were supposed to tell somebody else. And yet it was them. There's so much significance in all of this. And Jesus came exactly how he needed to come. It says, uh, something that I read, it said, It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, that's so cool. So, so cool. That's why I love the shepherds. All right, verses 17 through 20. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Interesting that the shepherds who can't testify in a a court of law are the people God uses to spread his birth announcement. Like, that's just so cool. They were unworthy. They were excluded. They were not predictable. And like, like Jesus like, them, let's use them. (laughs) Oh, how awesome is that? It says, all who heard it marveled. A lot of them probably didn't even fully understand what they were hearing. 
but they knew something about what the shepherds were saying was significant. It was more significant than they ever could have known, but they were like, uh, this is important. It's kind of like when you hear something and you're like, okay, I don't know the, the fullness of this, but this is important. That's what people must have felt like that heard about it. They didn't understand it fully, but it was important. Now, at this moment, I do want to mention the wise men, even though they are not mentioned here yet, okay? Because I want to show just a little parallel between the shepherds and the wise men, because it shows something about Jesus. Both saw Jesus. One saw him at his birth. The wise men, it seems from accounts that it was a little bit later in life, okay? But it shows that Jesus doesn't show favoritism or that social status isn't important. Because the shepherds and the wise men could not be more opposite. On one hand, you have these guys who are poor. And on the other hand, you have these guys who are rich. One is unlearned and one is learned. One's a Jew, one's a Gentile. One is near, one is far. I mean, polar opposites of people. And yet both get to be a part of the Savior story. I just think that's pretty cool that everyone is included. No one is excluded. Now this is where we're going to end. It says the shepherds returned and and glorified and praised God. All they saw was a baby in a manger. I mean, the angels came to them, of course. But they didn't see the whole story. All they saw was a baby wrapped in some pieces of cloth, lying in a trough that animals eat in, probably dusty, gringy, smelly barn. And yet they glorified and they praised the Lord. We, who know the whole story, we know everything leading up to it. We know the story of Jesus' birth and it doesn't stop there for us. It doesn't stop at the baby in a manger for us. It continues on to Jesus as he walked the earth and the teachings that he had and it proceeds to his death and his resurrection. And yet, are we giving all the glory and praise to the Lord? We see in full of what happened in this story. And yet the shepherds only saw a part of it. And they were so overjoyed with it, they couldn't help but praise God and give glory to him and tell everyone around them. And then there's us. I was convicted. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. So I hope you are too. Because I know what Jesus has done for me. I know that he died on a cross and he rose again. That he left his Holy Spirit to be here with me. How much praise and glory am I giving him in my life? The shepherds have something to teach us. They saw something small, not even in entirety, 
but they gave praise and glory. We see an entirety of the story. Therefore, we should be giving praise and glory. My husband said something in his message. This is my second ending, by the way. <laughs> and he said, you know, we, we often look for the big things, the big miracles. And he's like, well, what about the little things? And I really, are, are we praising God and glorifying God in the little things, the little things that we ask or maybe even just have a thought about and God fulfills them. And after Sunday's message, I really tried to make that applicable in my life, even to my son being worried about losing his 4.0 because of a test that he kind of studied the wrong material for and kind of bombed the test and he had to write a paper and he was very worried was it going to be enough and so we prayed about that stinking paper and that he wouldn't lose his 4.0 and he didn't and I made sure to text him and say hey make sure you thank the Lord and I rejoiced in that to you know my daughter making it home the other day and we had terrible weather and we only had to drive 15 minutes she was driving two and a half hours from college she finished college congratulations Liz and came home before she goes on to her next thing in life and I was so worried about her driving and so I just prayed about it I'm like Lord please help her get home safely and when she walked in the door, I was like, thank you, Jesus, so much for bringing her home safely. I pray for my daughter when she plays basketball. I pray not just for my daughter, but for all the girls playing because I literally hate seeing a girl get hurt. Even when my daughter throat punched somebody on accident, but she made sure she was okay and she was okay. I praise God for that. So praise and glorify God. Not just in this Christmas season, but in everyday life. The little things, the big things. Let's take some cues from the shepherd. Even when we don't see in full, let's praise and glorify God. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you all. I will see you all in the new year and I pray you have the merriest Christmas. I love you all.